Welcome back, everyone, to our fifth installment of Indotechno. Indotechno is a weekly podcast in which we invite guests on to discuss all matters Indonesia and technology related. We also offer transcript in Bahasa Indonesia. Kami akan memberikan transcript podcast Bahasa Indonesia di situs web kami. My name is Alan Hallowell. I'm the host of Indotechno. I'm also the founder of Gizmo Advisors, and I serve as venture partner at Alpha JWC Ventures. Well, today is the first day of phase two of the circuit breaker here in Singapore, whereby retail outlets, restaurants, and other establishments have begun to reopen. There are, in fact, many parallels between the reopening of the Singaporean economy today and the topic of our podcast, being whether the pathway to the initial public offering, or IPO, will reopen to Southeast Asian and specifically Indonesian tech companies after having remained dormant for a few years. In order to examine where Indonesia tech is along the pathway to delivering an IPO onto the foreign exchanges, we've brought in one of the best and the brightest and most experienced in the business, Andy Tai of Goldman Sachs. I worked with Andy and the Goldman Sachs team when I was chief strategy officer at C-Group in the run-up to our October 2017 IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, or NYSE. Goldman Sachs also assisted us at C-Group with a number of other post-IPO fundraising exercises throughout 2018. Andy, thanks a bunch for joining us. Would you mind sharing with us your background? Sure, Alan, and thanks uh, for the invite to to join the podcast. Uh, Hello, everyone. So by way of background, uh, I'm a managing director with Goldman Sachs. I've been with Goldman for about 14 years now. Today, I spent most of my time running our technology business for Southeast Asia. Uh, And what that entails is really covering and advising uh, all the large and important technology companies within Southeast Asia. So you're an investment banker. Um, For non-practitioners, can you spend uh, another minute or two describing what exactly you do as an investment banker? Sure. As an investment banker, there are really two parts of the business I I would think of. On one side, which is the advisory part of the business that involves advising our clients around potential merger and acquisitions, particularly for, I think, if companies, you know, want to sell themselves or in the future looking to acquire other companies. That is, I think, half of the business that we actually do. The other half of the business that we focus on is really capital raising. And it could be in multiple forms, such as equity offerings, debt offerings, convertible bonds. But you know, that's the other half of the way I spend most of my time uh, advising high growth tech companies about their plans to raise capital and how that dovetails into their kind of growth plans as well. Fantastic. Well, that's exactly the topic we're hoping to discuss today with you, Andy. Now, I know Goldman Sachs to be an active investor in technology. Can you speak more to that? Sure. I'm glad you raised that because not a lot of people know this, but everyone thinks of Goldman Sachs as a large global investment bank. We also have another part of our business where to the extent that we like high growth tech businesses, we actively deploy capital and invest in those businesses as well. Some kind of examples, we were actually a very early investor in Alibaba. Today, globally as well, we are shareholders in Uber, 
we own a stake in Spotify as well. Closer to home in Southeast Asia, we are actually shareholders in Momo Wallet. We are a shareholder in Spark Systems in Singapore as well, and multiple other kind of high growth tech investments within Southeast Asia. So as I mentioned before, I, I, I got to know you when working with you on the IPO of C Group in late 2017. Can you share with us other examples of work you've done here in the region in the tech space? So a lot of our time has been spent for capital raising and advisory in the private markets. Some recent fundraisings we've done for Ninja Van, for Q Express, even for SEA before the company went public, we advised on two rounds of private financing for C Group. A big picture question for you, Andy. The global economy is clearly facing problems unknown in our lifetime. And yet indices such as the tech-heavy NASDAQ are near all-time highs. What, what do you read into this, particularly as it relates to the tech sector? Largely very positive for the tech sector, but more importantly, it kind of highlights the digital and technology disruption that we see quite often in the tech space. And I think public investors recognize that. And in some ways, COVID, while obviously creating an overhang for the whole macroeconomic environment, has, I think, in many ways, accelerated the digital adoption of a lot of the kind of day-to-day -day services and products that we use. And so all-time highs that you alluded to on, on the NASDAQ is, is a reflection of that. People know that the acceleration of digital adoption, tech companies in our region are very well-placed to benefit from that. And there is an expectation that while investors are paying at, at high valuations today for stocks, particularly around tech, they are strong believers that technology companies will be high generators of growth and with long-term profitability as well. At the very least, a silver lining, if not a full gold lining to an otherwise challenging situation. Now, Andy, as you and I know, the market on this side of the world that has delivered far and away the largest number of IPOs onto the NASDAQ and the NYSE in the U.S. is clearly China. I think as we speak, there are more than 160 Chinese companies listed in the U.S. Most of them are internet and e-commerce names. By my count, they represent roughly 1.5 trillion U.S. dollars in value, or what we call market cap. From Southeast Asia, we have exactly one single solitary internet company listed in the U.S., C Group, with a market cap of 50 billion U.S. dollars. Why the absolutely massive disparity here between China and Southeast Asia? Whilst I think today where we sit, obviously there's only one Southeast Asia company that is public, as you alluded to. But do I think in the future, will there be many other companies that are listed in the U.S. from Southeast Asia? I think the answer is yes. In my mind, it's just a matter of timing. If we sat here and we had these conversations, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you would be asking me too is why are there no real Chinese tech companies listed in the U.S.? So in my mind, it's just a evolution of the market. Naturally, the U.S. has been the most mature and developed in terms of technology evolution. And China has followed after that. We as a firm are obviously very bullish around Southeast Asia because Asia is probably the next key area of growth and technology adoption as well. So 
whilst we only have one Southeast Asia representative in the U.S. capital markets, I think it's actually just a matter of time as markets develop that we will have many more Southeast Asia companies uh, listed in the U.S. That's encouraging to hear, Andy. Let, let's tighten the focus to Indonesia. What, what important milestones do Indonesia's tech companies need to achieve in order for the IPO pipeline to begin flowing? I think Indonesia has always been at the top of investors' lists from a market standpoint. One of the largest economies in the world, very large population size as well. So the total addressable market from day one, I think, has been highly uh, attractive to investors. Where investors kind of need to understand more from the tech companies is really around execution and how they drive the consumer into a very digital environment. So what do I mean by that? I think to answer your question more specifically, tech companies in Indonesia obviously will need to focus on maintaining high top-line revenue growth, maintaining strong user engagement, and I think these are all things that we typically focus on high-growth tech companies. But more importantly, and I feel like it's a matter of time, is a pivot to really profitability as well. And I think that will be crucial as companies think about their business plan to IPO is when is the right time to start monetizing their user base? When is the right time to focus less on growth by really pivoting to that mindset about generating profitability, which I think to the extent that they can, will put them at a very strong premium valuation in the public markets. That's crystal clear advice. Thanks for that. Now, I'm currently working with a number of companies as they prepare for IPOs, but probably over the next two to three years. Andy, how do you conventionally define a successful IPO? We always start from a position of trying to create a win-win situation. From the C standpoint, obviously, they were the first public company to be listed in the U.S. from Southeast Asia. And so there was a key milestone and it, it was a successful IPO in the sense that we got investors very excited about business and they ultimately came in and invested through the IPO. When we listed SEA as well, it had a market cap of high single digits. And today, as you mentioned, it's a 45 to $50 billion company. All shareholders have been very happy with their investment. And I think that actually defines a successful IPO. Now, Andy, by last count, there were more than 60 major stock exchanges across the world. In your mind, what are the most viable places for Indonesia companies to list? As we think about the right locations or venues for Indonesian companies to, to list, we factor in a combination of where are the most savvy and well-educated tech investors based, you know, which markets have strong liquidity, which markets have regulations and government framework that are very helpful to the Indonesian tech companies. And I would say that the natural listing venue would be actually in the US. Indonesian tech companies can also consider listing in Indonesia as well. Well, that brings up my next question, Andy. Will a dual Indonesia-US listing become a popular strategy in your mind? And if so, why? I think it will. And I think it makes a lot of sense for Indonesian companies as well. It creates a unique situation where 
On the Indonesian side, as everyone knows, there are certain tax benefits for the Indonesian companies by listing in, the, in Indonesia. I think secondly, a lot of these tech companies also have very strong brand recognition in Indonesia. So that will also help, I think, drive and accelerate a lot of the investor demand and valuation. In terms of also adding a U.S. component to it, you know, as everyone knows, the U.S. markets probably has the deepest pool of capital. Investors there are probably also the most savvy around technology. And I think lastly is there's also a very strong liquidity in the U.S. markets as well. Andy, you talked about just a couple of minutes ago what makes for a successful IPO. I'm just wondering, are there any fundamental investor questions that need to be answered for them to buy into an Indonesian tech IPO? That's a, that's a good question, Alan, and, and I think we get that all the time. A simple framework to think about it, I think a lot of investors think of it from a top-down approach as well. The first question that most investors will have will be, what is the total addressable market that companies are really addressing? Secondly is, what is the market competition? How do they actually compete and have a sustainable comparative advantage over time? Third, I think will be, everyone is obviously very clear around driving growth and it's quite easy to have, I think in this environment, a track record about strong revenue growth. I do think that the ones that differentiate themselves over the long run is, like I mentioned before, being able to demonstrate very strong user economics, being able to demonstrate that in terms of branding and, and user retention, they have very strong numbers. And ultimately, this leads to a very clear path to profitability. I think the third point may be early for a lot of companies in Indonesia today, but to the extent that they have the track record or data points to demonstrate the third piece around path to profitability, it will set them apart vis-a-vis -a, -vis a lot of the other players in the market. Very helpful, Andy. I want to address this bizarre asymmetry one more time. So Southeast Asia, 600 million in population, 3 trillion plus in GDP. Indonesia alone, a population of maybe 270 million and over 1 trillion US dollars in GDP. And again, one listed company, which very notably, C Group is up 165% just since the beginning of this year, making it, I think, one of the very best performing stocks in the world. As we know, C Group encompasses e-commerce, gaming, and fintech. Assuming that the share price performance is a reflection of investor sentiment in these big areas, why isn't investor enthusiasm spreading for other IPOs from this region? I think investors are actually fundamentally excited about Southeast Asia IPO selling. I actually will debate the question is whether are companies in Southeast Asia actually ready to list in the US or have they set themselves up internally for IPO? It kind of feels like, you know, a lot of the companies in Southeast Asia are still very focused and rightly so around building up their businesses, gaining more market share, trying to increase digital penetration of their businesses. And the IPO is something that they will consider over the next two or three years. The other thing I would highlight too is the private capital markets continue to be very robust. And that is a good substitute in my mind for public capital. 
when companies are ready to IPO, I think they will. But to the extent that today the private markets are there to fund them, they would obviously want to push back the IPO as, as late as possible. Well, you've preempted my next question, which is indeed, one could say that over the past 10 years, we've seen a very interesting experiment by which tech companies have been kept private longer. And instead of IPOs being the means to raise billions of dollars, they've done so privately. How do you see this quote unquote experiment being modified, if at all, as we go forward? I think you're right. For a lot of the tech companies, we've seen an increased desire to stay private as long as possible. As you kind of alluded to as well, going public gives most companies a additional access to larger pools of capital. But going public obviously has its hurdles or barriers for a lot of tech companies like additional governance, public scrutiny and things like that. And so a lot of high growth tech companies globally have chosen to stay private as long as possible. On your question about the experiment being modified, I do think that today we're going the other way where a lot of companies are looking to IPO as well much earlier because I think their shareholders in terms of private capital, while always being there, want their portfolio companies to go public and allow them to crystallize their gains as early as possible. And so I think the shareholder pressure or shareholder focus on crystallizing returns will push them to IPO as soon as possible. As you mentioned earlier, Andy, it's, it's common for new business models to burn cash as their services gain wider adoption. And as you also referenced earlier, an important milestone on the path of a company in really gaining command of its own destinies to start making profits. Is this one of the things that investors are waiting for before welcoming IPOs from this part of the world? Do companies need to actually be profitable at the time of IPO? I think the answer is no. I think where investors care about is making sure that there are sufficient data points, whether it be through traffic, user engagement, monetization, reduction of sales and marketing over time. These are all good data points that when you consolidate and package up as a story for investors, they get a sense that going forward, could it be even post-IPO, that the company itself has a path to profitability. I think that's the most important. Gotcha. Now, Andy, a lot of Indonesian internet is quote-unquote 2C, B to C, C to C, the C representing being consumer-focused. Are you confident that areas such as online video, ride hailing, and various parts of fintech will monetize well? Because we still seem to be giving away a lot of services on the internet, or at least subsidizing them heavily. I do think that over the long run, if you look at the US as a good example, a lot of the services that you talked about will be able to monetize. The question is, and maybe to be clear, is when you mean monetize well, at what level? I think for services that have very strong consumer demand is a consumer staple in some ways and has, I think, strong user adoption. I think those will probably monetize at very attractive take rates. Online video ride hailing are maybe good examples. And there are certain parts of the tech business that are consumer focused that may be just more of rails to do other things 
you know, in my mind, payments may be something that's interesting. I think it's very strong technology platform for all companies to get user engagement. But in the long run, is payments going to be something that will generate high monetization? I'm more of the in the camp of being skeptical around it. But this is a very critical part of the infrastructure for a lot of the tech companies to do other things. Gotcha. So in this case, payments may look like a loss leader, but it's also in many ways a likely on-ramp to much more profitable and even larger markets and financial services. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. In my mind, it's, uh, the most important thing is it just shapes user behavior. Indonesia especially, as we all know, a lot of transactions are still using cash or bank transfer to the extent that we as a whole ecosystem encourage users to do online payments actually kind of shapes user behavior and gets everyone more comfortable about going online. Got you. Andy, I know you've been, at least up until the pandemic, flying around the region constantly. Do you have any thoughts as to whether an internet company focused on one single large market, such as Indonesia, will be preferred by investors or whether it will be important to offer a multi-market regional solution or platform through an IPO? I think there is the flexibility to do both. The practical part is companies themselves should really take a look internally at what are their strengths and can they actually have the bandwidth to operate across regions. Everyone always thinks of Southeast Asia as one market, but the practical part is we are multiple countries in one and even in the same country, there are multiple languages and cultural behaviors, for example. And so that actually creates a lot of pressure and unnecessary overheads for companies if they really want to do a regional standpoint. On the flip side, if you look at just Indonesia, for example, as a large single market, single markets is always easier, I think, in some ways to execute and penetrate. But Indonesia itself is also a very large and dispersed country itself, multiple islands. There are also a lot of high barriers as well. So I think the overlying summary, I think, to most companies is do what you think is best for you. What are your strengths? And ultimately, the results will show for itself from a market share standpoint, from a market leadership standpoint, revenue growth, and ultimately profitability to the extent that you check the box in all these key data points for investors. They will invest in you regardless of whether you are really in a large single market or regional across Southeast Asia. Some really useful insights and advice, Andy. Thanks for that. Any other specific advice that you would give an Indonesian entrepreneur with aspirations of taking his or her company to IPO? Based on my experience, Alan, I think most founders appreciate that it probably only once in their life where they will take the company public, but they should not find the IPO process itself daunting or very scary. I think the practical part is there are very strong global presidents. There are experienced advisors like Excel who can guide companies on the right steps and processes to IPO. The entrepreneur should obviously think of the IPO as a, a end goal, but very achievable for their company. The other thing I would think most founders too is, I think most founders underappreciate the amount of effort and time that needs to be dedicated to IPO process. Founders should really start early 
get as much information as possible and then think of start planning the IPO, which will take some time. Gotcha. So in conclusion, not an insurmountable process, but definitely one that requires a lot of forethought and preparation. And luckily, a process that's surrounded by a very sophisticated ecosystem of advisors and various other service providers. That, that's, that's great. All right. Well, we've now completed our fifth installment of Indotechno. Always great talking to you, Andy, and thanks so much for joining us today. As always, we welcome any and all other feedback, good listener, on the show. My email is alan at gizmoadvisors.com. Uh, that's alan at gizmo-advisors.com. Please also visit our website at indo-techno.com. Techno is spelled T-E-K-N-O, indo-techno.com, if you would like to be put on our mailing list for new episodes. The podcast was translated from English to Bahasa Indonesia by Alpha JWC Ventures. Terima kasih untuk mendengarkan. Sampai jumpa lagi. Bye.